You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Brown with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. We set as a goal last year that we were going to, once every month and a half or so, take some questions from the Strong Towns Action Lab. We get a lot of really good questions in there. A lot of people interacting with them and, and providing answers. And one of the things we wanted to do was give an opportunity to go over some of those here have me give some of those answers instead of sitting down and, and typing them out, share them here on the podcast stream. And in doing so, also invite all of you who have questions. You know, this podcast tends to not be very interactive back and forth. You guys make comments sometimes, those are great, but we don't talk about them here a lot. This is an opportunity for everybody. If you have a question, if you want to chat about something, if you want me to talk about something on a podcast, to be able to get that to us. So, with me today is Lauren Fisher. She does communications with Strong Towns, and she's the one who is uh, handling the incoming flow of all these questions. Lauren, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Hi, Chuck. Thanks. Nice to be here again. It's nice to see you. Can we, before we start, let people know where, if they want to submit a question, where they go and do that at? Yeah. So, if you want to submit a question that you want Chuck or other members of the Strong Town staff to consider, then all you have to do is go to actionlab.strongtowns.org. And then if you scroll just a little bit down the page, there is a little speech bubble icon with the words, join the conversation over it. So we want you to click on join the conversation and then navigate over to questions for Strong Towns. There's also a general discussion board and a job board where you can post jobs that might pique the interest of uh, people who are involved in the Strong Towns movement. There's lots of different opportunities for you to talk with other members of the Strong Towns movement and really be a part of the community. And while you're waiting for us to get to your question, you can also upvote other questions that you like, right? Stuff you, you really want to make sure we talk about. And, you know, there's a lot of very smart people listening to this. If you have an answer to someone else's question, you can provide that. We're all trying to help each other out here. So it's a great place. You, you might find someone giving you some good advice there as well. Right, Lauren? Yeah, absolutely. Before we get to any of the questions this time, I know you've been doing some behind the scenes work on communications. Anybody who subscribes to our emails, getting regular emails from Lauren, you added a new thing this year. And I know it's been very popular amongst a small group of people, but you want to let some more people know about it in case they were interested in well. What, what is that? Yeah, we had a lot of email subscribers reach out to me because uh, if you respond to an email that you get from Lauren at Strong Towns, I actually see that and I look at it and I take it into account. So a lot of people had responded to the regular emails that we send out and they had asked for a, a sort of a digest email that links them to a lot of the most recent content by Strong Towns. So it's really handy. They can just go 
and click on that email once a week and see what the Strong Towns movement has been up to. And at the end of 2021, I, I listened to you guys and I made this email list. So I wanted to make sure that you know, if you want that digest, that list of stories that Strong Towns came out with once a week in your email inbox, where it's really easy to get a hold of, all you have to do is go to strongtowns.org email. And now there is a little checkbox. And if you want that digest, you just put in your email address. Even if you're in our system already, put in your email address and check that you want the digest. You can also get this by, if you get our regular emails, just go into the bottom of that email and adjusting your subscription preferences. I would be happy to send you that email. And what if I just reply to you when you email me and say, hey, Lauren, sign me up for this. I know that's going to be a pain in the neck for you, but I kind of like the idea of doing that because I'm a little curmudgeonly when it comes to email. I don't want to click on all this stuff. <laughs> you can absolutely just respond to an email, send me an email, lauren at strongtowns.org. I will personally add you to this list. And I'm looking forward <laughs> to adding lots of people to this list. I know that this list in particular is a labor of love for you. So thanks. Thanks for doing that. I know you're always looking for ways to get the stuff that is going on here out to people in ways that is interesting and, and they can digest. And I think most of all, it's helpful for them. So thank you, Lauren. Yeah, of course. I can tell you being out on the road again and you know having the opportunity to chat with people live in person, it's amazing to me how many people say, Strong Towns, oh yeah, Lauren. I get, I get emails from Lauren all the time. <laughs> And it's this like personal connection where, you know, people like hearing from you. You're actually a real person. It's no fake pseudonym behind that one. <laughs> yep. I am a real person, turns out. All right. You got some questions. We're going to go through them. Go for it. Where do you want to start? I wanted to start with this question from Colin Slowey, who lives in a college town in Texas, where he is seeing a lot of development around the university. He says that developers are coming in and they are doing a lot of work on neighborhoods and changing them from single family housing to group homes for students. He points out that this is something that Strong Towns kind of talks about is upzoning places and developing them to the next increment of what they can be, creating more housing. But what he's seeing is that the construction in these places is kind of shoddy and the developers who are doing these projects aren't doing a great job of maintaining what they put up, which is damaging the property values of, of the surrounding areas. And it, it's making the people who live there not very happy. It's not contributing to making the neighborhoods more resilient. So he wants to know what can be done to address this issue that doesn't involve things like rigid zoning requirements or like NIMBY neighborhood associations. Yeah. What a complex phenomenon, right? Because universities are fantastic amenities for a community. We've been having this conversation here recently about, you know, should churches pay taxes? And the same kind of thinking goes to a, a university. You know, should a university pay taxes because it, it sits in a community, it's tax exempt, it, you know, requires all these services, but yet is not paying taxes the way that every other property does. And I've always thought like with churches, with government buildings, with universities, that type of thing, 
it, it's almost the wrong way to frame it, particularly historically. When we look at these places, they were always amenities. It's weird to think of a church as an amenity, maybe. It's weird, it's maybe easier to think of a university as an amenity. But they were buildings that projected value out to the rest of the community. The church that I go to is actually kitty corner to the office here. It's a beautiful cathedral kind of building. And it really makes, whether you know you go there or not, it actually is a very pleasant building for the entire neighborhood. It's, it's a very nice place. Universities have the same effect, right? People like to live near them because they tend to be very beautiful places. They tend to be places with a lot of positive energy, a lot of positive activity. And so in, in that sense, you know, we should embrace the fact that there's a university there. And, and I suspect that the person submitting this question, Colin, did you say his name was? Yeah, Colin. Yeah, I suspect one of the reasons why Colin lives in this place is because he likes the university. The downside of it, of course, is that students go to universities. Students need places to live. Students like things like loud parties and drinking and staying up late on inappropriate nights, and, you know, what have you. And so you, you have this kind of dichotomy where you get a lot of the positive energy with universities, good restaurants, cheap finger food, you know, like all the, all the kind of stuff that goes along with it. But then you get the downside, which is, you know, a couple of nights a week, there's going to be a kegger up the street or what have you. When that is the underlying tension, right? Like, the single family home neighborhood is being bought up and converted into multifamily units. The tension that I most often see around that is this is pricing people out. You know, now a single family home that used to be a, a place for one person is now a place for 12 students. I lived in one of these when I, you know, went to the University of Minnesota. It was an old like historic mansion is what it would have been. I mean, I have like 4,000 square foot. It was a huge house. But had 13 guys living in it, you know, seven in one side and six in the other. The amount of rent that we were charged it was far greater, you know, in aggregate. Individually, it was, it was modest, but in aggregate, it would have been far greater than what could have been made by keeping it as a single family home and trying to rent it out to someone. And so the, the market economics of these places kind of pushes it into these multifamily situations or these multi-individuals in the case of students. Let's just stop right there and say that that is actually a good thing, right? Over time, as properties become more valuable, they should convert. As the land becomes more valuable, as that amenity increases and more people want to live near it, as the neighborhood starts to thicken up and grow and evolve, what we should see is that single-family homes adapt and change into multifamily homes. Multifamily homes uh, eventually, you know, are going to be replaced by some type of complex that would have even more units. This is actually a, a good thing. And so if we're hung up on that transition, that wasn't the question, but I, I want to dwell on it because that's where I see the most amount of friction. It, it's not a healthy place to get hung up on you're kind of going to have to learn how to live in a college town with college kids. And that's, that's part of the MO, right? That's part of the downside of the upside of living next to a university, which is really awesome. Let's go to the, the, the actual question though, because the question is, as this transition is happening, it seems like some of these places are being like slumlorded out 
not being well-maintained, not being fixed up the way they should. I don't know where that impression comes from. Maybe it's real. Maybe it's an imposed impression. I don't know Colin, and I don't, I don't know Colin's motivations, obviously. But to the extent that that's like a, a, a genuine problem, like that's the core of the problem. Like I'm really worried that these places are shoddy. I think that, you know, that there are reasonable things we should do from a regulatory standpoint to require like the grass to be mowed and the house to be upkept. I mean, these are neighborhoods that are rising in value. And what you what you want to do is you want to keep nudging them up that 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 value spectrum. And so allowing someone to kind of sit there for a decade or two decades with a place that is falling apart and is undervalued and is not being well taken care of, when it's appreciating in value and there's wealth that's being built, that's just nonsensical. So yeah, go out and use your regulatory palette. That's a good place to say, you know, we're going to require you to mow your yard. We're going to require you to do basic upkeep. We're going to require you to be a good neighbor. It's always about being a good neighbor. We're going to require you to be a good neighbor. And if that places, you know, a, a large burden on you in terms of, you know, like, I don't want to repaint the house or I don't want to redo the roof or I don't want to fix that broken window. That's fine because that probably means that the next level of intensity is the level you should go to. I mean, maybe some of those buildings need to be torn down and converted into small apartment buildings. I look at the University of Minnesota where I went. It's not a perfect example, but the neighborhoods around it had a lot of old historic homes. Like I said, the homes have been converted into student housing. I go back now, I went back recently with my with my family to go to a concert. And a lot of those buildings have been torn down and now we're like six story little apartment buildings next to the university. High end kind of student housing, very nice stuff. That's the natural evolution of a productive place. And part of that evolution is a period where there's this tension over maintenance. If you wanna move that along, use your regulatory controls to, to move it along. I mean, his question was like, without resorting to that, is there some way? And I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I don't think regulation's like always bad, right? And when you're going to single family home neighborhoods and, and harassing people who are struggling, I, I don't know if it makes sense, but here you have a situation where it feels like it's more corporate ownership or outside ownership or LLC ownership that's the impression I got from the way it was written. Yeah. You're nudging this place along a slope of uh, improvement. Go ahead and use, you know, they should be maintaining the yard. They should be maintaining the buildings. They should be doing, you know, decent construction practices. That's why we have codes. You know, it's a good application of those. It seems like there's uh, the angle of how do we make sure that the developers who are doing these projects are are making sure that the places are maintained and making sure that they're adding value to the neighborhood in that way. But I wonder, Chuck, if you think there's also an angle of how can this place or places like it invite the existing homeowners, property owners in the area to participate in that, that kind of upward trajectory of the neighborhood and that, and that kind of development? Elaborate a little bit on what you mean by participate, because I feel like it's a double-edged sword, right? In your impression, like what would that feel like for a homeowner to be? So I wonder if it's an opportunity for homeowners who do have the resources to invest in their properties, add 
ADUs or rent out rooms, or maybe, maybe they can participate in that kind of development process, providing the housing. And then they also have, because they live in that neighborhood, or they have lived in the neighborhood for a long time, an investment in making sure that it, that it stays nice. I think that there's no doubt in that. Yes, they can participate in that. I don't know Colin and I don't know, like I said before, I don't know like his motivations. One of the things that I get a lot in these neighborhoods is the prices are going up, the values are going up. We don't like these people are coming in and converting homes. But we do like the fact that, you know, our house that was half a million dollars is now 1.2 million. Like that, that is a very nice feeling that we have. In a sense, the homeowners are participating. They're participating in having their property appreciate in value. They obviously have the option, which is a great option, to stay in their single-family home and live in that neighborhood as it evolves and changes around them. I would argue that if the, you know, if the design is done right, if the things that are built are truly the next increment of development intensity, meaning they respect the neighborhood, the neighborhood character. They are a welcome addition to the neighborhood. With every new unit, things should be getting better, right? There should be more opportunities to go grab coffee. There should be more places to eat. There should be more things to do. There should be more amenities in that neighborhood. There'd be more people, but those two things go hand in hand. And so, yeah, if you own a single family home and you're in the neighborhood and you're watching it evolve, you can participate in that, no doubt. You can cut up your place and you know convert it into a duplex or add an ADU, or you can just enjoy the sweet property value appreciation until you reach a point in time where you don't want to live in that neighborhood anymore, and then you can choose to live in a different neighborhood and have the wealth and the means to do that. I'm not reacting to Colin in this specific instance as much as I'm reacting to the common buzz that I get in most of these places. And the common buzz that I get often is an anti-development one. It's one where, let me caricature, again, not calling, but like other people that I run into, which is, you know, I used to live, I've lived in this neighborhood for years and I don't like these young kids coming in here, changing the neighborhood. And I don't know. I mean, that that is no neighborhood will be absolutely perfect in all circumstances at all times you get the great value of living near university. What an amazing gift. What an amazing thing to have. The downside is you're going to be in a neighborhood that's going through this kind of ongoing transition. Some of it, which will be a little bit messy at times. I lived in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, which has the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. I remember in 2018 or something around there, we were getting a lot of those sentiments from property owners around the university that you're talking about, Chuck, that resistance to young people occupying the, the properties around them. And, and it, was, it was multifaceted, it was complex, but one way that the city actually tried to, tried to regulate was to regulate the behavior of the citizens in the area. So they would have like rules about what time of day you could be doing what activities and those sorts of things. But I think that what you're talking about has more to do with making sure that the grass is mowed, making sure that the the house looks nice from the outside. It's actually regulations that are imposed on developers and the property management companies rather than taking it out on the, the people who are living there and giving us this opportunity to grow and become more 
wealthy and wonderful. Let me just make two like concluding thoughts on like a strong towns approach as as we think about it here. The, the first one is that every neighborhood has to evolve and change. X has to always be greater than zero when X is the rate of change. So like sticking in place, not acceptable. What is the next increment? And as long as the next increment's being respectful to the surrounding properties, go for it. I think the second part of this though is a recognition that a strong town is never a perfect place. It's always like a work in process. Cities are organic systems. Humans are organic systems. I think none of us would look at ourselves and say, we are perfect. We have, we have you know, reached the pinnacle of perfection and nothing should ever change. We recognize that as humans, we are a work in progress. And when we're young, we may have more physical acumen. As we get old, I hope maybe we have more mental uh, acuity. I, I don't know how, you know, we'll see people change and evolve over time. I think we have to look at cities as the same way, right? When, when, they're, when they're single family homes and they're very young in their maturity cycle, they offer different things than when they get older. And those things will, will change and evolve and adapt over time. I can promise you it will always be messy. It will always need block level nuance and block level discussions and conversations. Strong as is not promising like a perfect place. We are promising a path towards improvement. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Chuck. So the next yeah. question I have for you is from Rodney Rutherford. Rodney actually went on to Colin's question about this college development situation. Yeah. And he know, was Rodney. able to provide yeah. a little bit of insight there too. So we are seeing people lending each other their insights and experience on the Action Lab and in this Q&A format. But Rodney came on and he has a question. He's on his city planning commission. He lives in a place with about 90,000 people and he's two blocks away from a planned $300 million BRT station. And he has a question about like, how can his place navigate an impending multi-million dollar development while still moving forward with Strong Town's principles? How can we do the best we can to employ Strong Town's principles in the reality that this uh, big money investment is already happening in this place? Yeah. Let me give you an analogy here, the way that I'm hearing this question. So I'm swimming on the beach. I'm enjoying my floaty. I'm sitting there and we're, you know, having a good day at the beach and all of a sudden a tsunami hits me. And the question is, how do I keep enjoying the beach while the tsunami comes in? And the reality is, it's like, there's not a lot of good you know, responses to that. When I look at like my own hometown, uh, there are things within my circle of concern that get me very uptight. The DOT is looking at doing a big project through the middle of town. I might be able to impact that project a little bit one way or the other, but I'm going to have a, a difficult time stopping it altogether, like an impossible time because, you know, the money is wired. There's only so many levers that can be pushed or pulled. There's a limited amount in, in that circle of concern. Um, where I have more effect is in my circle of control, right? What are the things that I can actually impact? And 
The thing is, is when we focus on our circle of control, if we actually look at the things that we can do, what we find is that over time, we can actually build competencies to expand that. Um, you know, if, if we knew this thing was coming a decade ago, the thing you would have wanted to do was start doing small projects in your neighborhood, start building a local conversation, start creating a team of people who were interested in the same thing. Start talking to your neighbors and affecting the way people think about their community. Start start sharing, you know, the strong dance posts that you like with your neighbors and having conversations with them and change the expectations and the dialogue so that when the tsunami hits, it's not just one person out on the beach in a floaty. It's like an armada of, of, of people who can say, all right, here's how we get through this. It's really hard today uh, because the, the reality is, is you would vote to not do the tsunami, right? I mean, that's that's the answer is like the things motivating decisions like this to do these large transformative projects, take these large steps, do things in this manner are not the things that would be prioritized if, if you had a bottom-up groundswell of, of action. So this is going to sound a little bit defeatist, but I would like recognize that you know, when you get cataclysmic money, what you're trying to do is limit the damage. You know, you're trying to limit the amount of ancillary damage that this will do. So try to make sure the urban design is done well. Try to make sure that it doesn't lean into driving and parking too much. Try to make sure that it has connections to the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, those are levers you may be able to to push on and, and, and get some change, get some things that, that work. But, you know, the idea that you would take a site like this, when you've got the, the large developer, the large bit of money, you've got an existing BRT investment that was made kind of prematurely for this site. You've got all these things in place that are pushing it towards some big, you know, big solution, big project, big way of approaching it. And, and, you know, that's a train you can lay down in front of, but I don't think doing that's going to help very much. Does that make sense, Lauren? I mean, I, I get frustrated because I realize these are the things that often motivate us. In some ways, my insight here is that that motivation is like a little bit too little too late, right? We have to actually start and build up the capacity to affect those things. And that is going to take, you know, time and energy in, in different ways. Yeah. And we get, we get questions from people in Rodney's situation in a lot of different contexts. So in, in this action lab space, we get questions. And then we also did a Q&A on Reddit. Chuck did a Q&A on Reddit just recently. A lot of people are in a situation that's similar to Rodney, where they're in a position like he's on the planning commission, or maybe somebody works at a a development firm or something like that. And they see these projects come down the pike and they're, they, they know it's not quite right, but they're kind of up against a lot of people who, a lot of momentum in, in that direction. What do you think, Chuck, is good to keep in mind for those people who are facing it right now? Like, how should they process it and get through it and move to that next thing? Yeah, when you're at a planning commission, you know, planning commissions have a quasi-judicial role, and they have a, a quasi-legislative role in the city government. And I think it's important to, to recognize that. What, what that means is that from a, a, let's take the legislative part first. In a quasi-legislative role, you can actually make rules, right? 
So the planning commission can make rules. Oftentimes it's, you know, put rules together and propose them to a city council and elected board that would then adopt them. But you have that opportunity to do that. That's going to be limited by the politics of your place, by what the city council will agree to and adopt. So, you know, if you know this is coming years, months in advance, you can proactively go in and, and kind of change the rules to get a better outcome. But once it's kind of here, once it's arrived, once it's like in front of you, now your role in a planning commission is quasi-judicial, which means you're no longer making rules, you're only interpreting rules that are on the books. And so what you do is you take a look at, you know, what does your code allow? What do your ordinances allow? What kind of conditions can we put on or things can we ask as part of the, the, the development process as it's laid out to try to get a slightly better outcome? But, you know, the closer you get to the day that this is going forward, the less leverage you have, you know, the less capacity you have to change things and affect things. Also, you know, when you're inside the government, the decision-making body, you have the capacity to actually make the decisions, but you have to conform to the law. You can't just make stuff up. There's all kinds of, you know, Supreme Court cases about having, you know, a reasonable nexus between the things that you're requiring and the things that they're asking to do. So you can't ask them to do something crazy just because you like it. It's got to actually be tied to an impact of the development, that kind of thing. So inside the government, you have a lot of power to actually affect the decision, but you have very limited power to actually stop something or change something, particularly at like the end of the day, right? You've got to get out in front of it a little bit more. I think if you're in the public, you have a little bit more flexibility to voice concerns. You have a little bit more flexibility to kind of move the discussion a little bit. You certainly can vote for different people and run campaigns and, and, and you know, do that kind of stuff. You know, you don't get to vote on the actual decision. So you have a lot less like real power. So I, I don't know. This is just like the power dynamics of the city. And, you know, I think it all comes back to the idea that if, if you're trying to do something at the 11th hour, you're pretty much stuck with like the track you're on. If you want to get on a different track, you have to actually change things in a, in a fundamentally different way that is not looking at a specific application. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. So I think that a lot of people find themselves in these situations, and we're going to probably be seeing more of that. So many of these projects are tied with federal funding. They, they happen because federal funding is available. And with the infrastructure bill kind of coming down the pike, we're going to see more of these sorts of projects and more people in a position where they have to make the best of this kind of cataclysmic money situation. We're doing, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm working on the locomotive session about infrastructure avalanche. And I met with Beth Osborne from Transportation for America, and she is the one who's going to be, be doing the session with me. She has some fascinating insights on where the power in these funding streams lie and where you should actually be directing your energy towards to, to impact them. But there certainly are ways that local leaders can get out in front of this. It's a little bit limited in the late hour of, of your options. But there are ways to do this well, and there's are ways to like totally fail at this. And yeah, I hope in that session we can give people some advice on, if nothing else, how to stick the landing a little bit better uh, when you're being jettisoned up in the air with this cataclysmic money coming. 
So if you were if you were interested in doing that session with Chuck and Beth Osborne, you can get your ticket for the local motive tour at strongtowns.org slash local motive. The next question that I have for you, Chuck, I thought this one was really interesting. It's from Gregory. He's he's involved with uh, on the ground Strong Towns organization and advocacy organization. He says, how can organizations like his generate revenue so that they can kind of sustain themselves and and have long-term resilience within the community. Uh, He's got questions about how how can they fundraise, how can they get a revenue stream and have that longevity that comes along with that. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. So I do feel like you're asking the wrong guy here. This is something where we should have someone who is better at this than me, because I've struggled in the wilderness a long time with this. Strong Towns has been very successful, but we've not been successful because of my fundraising capacity. The fundraising capacity has like followed the ideas. Let me point to a couple of examples of things that I've seen that have inspired me, people that I think have done great work. Paul Stewart in Oswego, New York, started the Historic Renaissance Association. I think that's what they call it. We've highlighted him a couple of times on the podcast. The, The work that they've done is amazing. Uh, just truly like spectacular. That all started with Paul and, you know, I, I think a couple of his friends, but largely Paul putting together a 501c3 and then applying for a very modest grant with a local nonprofit. Um, he has some grant writing acumen. He knows what he's doing. He, you know, uh, made the application, went and chatted with them, laid out his vision and, and it started very modestly, right? I think his first grant was something around $15,000. So not, you know, the, the utterly transform an entire neighborhood in a city was the goal. Uh, they started out with really modest means and said, let's show that this can work. I want to say last year that they had raised a quarter million dollars. It, it, don't quote me exactly on that, but like we're in that range now, you know, many multiples of what was originally this thing was started with. And they're doing that through uh, grant making through donations, through partnerships with the city and with other organizations. So they've broadened their funding stream over time and you know, grown their capacity as they've grown that, that funding. I will note, Paul's a volunteer and Paul has like a full daytime job. And this is something that he cares deeply about. And I don't know, things might have changed, but as of a couple of years ago, he was not getting paid a dime to do what really was be the CEO of a rather significant now local nonprofit. You know, he's one of my heroes. I'm really inspired by him. That I guess that's one path for doing it. There's another example that I'll lay out that is from here in, in my hometown that I've seen some community groups and some other groups take advantage of. We started uh, an organization here called Brainerd Community Action. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, and it's run by, actually the mayor runs it, but it wasn't a city initiative per se, but the city does give some money to it. He was running it before he became mayor, or there was, you know, there's no correlation between him being mayor and him running this. It's an incident, but he's the right guy for it because he's one of these approaching larger than life kind of guys who has a lot of energy to go around and rah-rah and cheer things on and and keep things moving. And that's what Brainerd Community Action does. They put on our fireworks. 
They help with our parade. They do a couple of things like that during the year. But most of what they do is serve as like a shelter for people who want to make donations to start up nonprofits. If you start a nonprofit, it's very easy to do. You can literally do it in half an hour. Uh, you can get your nonprofit status. What is hard to do, what is difficult to do, is get tax-exempt status. So 501c3 tax-exempt, where people can donate money to you and write that off on their taxes. And that's where you start to generate larger levels of, of contributions. What Brainerd Community Action has done is said, we will serve as an umbrella for anybody in the community who wants to do something to make this place better. So if you are an individual, if you are a startup nonprofit, if you are a, a local group of people trying to do something, you can go through them. You can fundraise and have the money given to them. And they will, as a 501c3, be able to provide that tax exempt status and then be able to help you fund your project. There's a little bit of strings in there because, of course, they have to be responsible about the money. You know, there's, it's not as clean as just like you fundraise, they get the money, they give it to you. But basically, it ends up to be like that. If you're genuinely wanting to go out and do something, uh, you can have your neighbors donate to that. You can have local businesses donate to that. And we've seen people do everything from raise a few thousand dollars for some modest changes in the park to six figures to put in a splash pad, all under this umbrella of you know this, this 501c3 in the community that has, has offered that as a service. Fundraising... Some people are really good at it. Some people are not good at it. I fall into the latter category. Like it's not, it's not natural for me. And I've been astounded by, you know, the number of members we have, the number of people who have donated to Strong Downs, the generosity of, of so many people. I, I will say that as part of my role here, I've been forced to get better at this because I, I care deeply about what we're doing. And as part of caring, I, I know that I, like, I'm the one who has to fundraise. You know, just a word for all those people who are not good at it. You're going to probably go through a lot of what we went through very early on, which is you're not going to get paid very much. You're not going to have that much money to work with. You're going to have to lead with a lot of love and a lot of uh, energy and a lot of kind of strategy to try to figure out how to leverage the resources you have to something great. But if you do that, you know, the, the example of Paul from Oswego is a really good one. As is Strong Towns, you know, it will gain momentum over time and the fundraising part of it will become easier. Uh, so, you know, just start small and stick with it. So I have just one more question picked out from the Action Lab uh, from Chris Smith. He's in our neck of the woods. So he lives in downtown St. Paul uh, and he's seeing a lot of downtown housing development. There's more housing available. There's more people. He's been reading a lot of Strong Towns and watching Jason Slaughter, who does not just bikes on YouTube. Chris thinks that more bike and walk infrastructure would be really good for St. Paul right now to support the people who, who live in that uh, downtown area and who want to access the things that they need on a daily basis on foot or on a bicycle instead of by getting into a car. But he sees that the city leadership, he says that they see it more as a luxury. So when they do make these sorts of investments, it's like, they it's do, not- definitely, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so they're not supporting a bike lane to get from your house to the grocery store so much as they're supporting a bike trail to get from a park that you have to drive to, to nowhere. 
So Chris, he's asking actually whether Strong Towns has a grassroots strategy for election season. But I would like to hear from you, Chuck, what you think can be done to change attitudes of leadership in places like that, where they see walking and cycling as something for recreation and luxury rather than a transportation option that is necessary for building a resilient community. You know, being from St. Paul, if if the guy asking the question was from, you know, Duluth or Rochester or St. Cloud, or, you know, to go broader, was from Cleveland or Kansas City or Lincoln, Nebraska, it would be a different response. But you're from St. Paul. Go over to Minneapolis. Like Minneapolis has this, if not completely figured out, they have this like really, really advanced way of doing this. Minneapolis is one of the best bike-friendly cities of North America. And they've got great grassroots organizing. Last year, we did a locomotive session on this, and we invited uh, the head of one of their bike coalitions. I can't remember the name of the group, but it was Ashwat and I did the session together. It, It was fantastic. I mean, he's amazing. And the work that they've done is amazing, just starting with, you know, open streets and how do we do events and how do we get more people out biking and how do we build this culture of biking and walking and then use that culture that, you know, that you got all these people out there doing it connected to each other to leverage those concerns when we get to elections, when we get to decisions. They are very much talking about biking and and walking as transportation. So, you know, to me, go across the river, (laughs) you know, like go, go a little ways over to your sister city and study what they do, because what they do is like nation leading in this, in this manner you touch on an overarching issue that is important for our listeners, for Strong Downs members, for people who want to see Strong Downs come about to grasp. And and that is the the difference between biking and walking as leisure, as recreation, and biking and walking as transportation. So much of our funding from the federal level, from the state level, rewards applications, approaches, plans that treat biking and walking as recreation. They'll fund miles of recreational trail. They'll fund sidewalks that connect parks to parking lots. It's really maddening because, uh, you know, what is done is is crowded out within biking, walking segments of public works departments. It's in the silo and hierarchies of these departments. They've created like, we've got a bike walk specialist or we've got a, you know, someone who's working on these bike walk issues who's attached to the regular engineering department or the regular planning department. And they have to justify their existence by going after the grants and the grants all are basically recreational in nature. It's a bad feedback loop. It's a bad cycle. And it manifests in us not being able to do very simple bike walk things in our neighborhoods. Here's where the strongest framing can help. When we recognize that cities are these uh, evolving ecosystems that need to incrementally grow and incrementally improve over a broad area, one of the consequences of that is just when Jared Walker, you know, who's on this podcast a couple weeks ago, talked about the, the geometry of a place. Eventually, trying to put so many cars into the same geometry doesn't work anymore. And when you're thickening a place up, when you're adding more homes, when you're adding more businesses, when you're adding more things to do, like they are in downtown St. Paul, 
What you find is that you just crowd out the automobile. The automobile becomes non-functional because it cannot possibly meet all of the demand that you have there. And so we have to look at other alternatives in order to accommodate more people in the same space. The easiest way to accommodate more people in the same space is to take space devoted to automobiles, which not only as you know, one person in it surrounded by steel and the whole automobile apparatus, but distance between vehicles, which has to be larger in a car than on a bike. And you replace that with multiple people walking and multiple people biking. There's ways to get to this because I know St. Paul very well. I look at St. Paul and am just frustrated that there's a billion dollar transit investment connecting downtown Minneapolis to downtown St. Paul, where the transit operators have to sit at traffic lights while you know single occupancy vehicles go back and forth in cross traffic. This is absurd. And if you wanted to start with building a culture of biking and walking in St. Paul, you would give the light rail transit that runs through this billion dollar investment, you would give it priority over the cross traffic so that people who got on a transit got to their destination quicker because it can handle way more people. Just the economics of that investment and the economics of the place that get more people in there, that means priority to the transit. If you did that, you would also build a lot of demand for people who are biking and walking to that transit station, particularly people who are within six blocks who are walking to it. There's another instance where when we get off that main corridor, prioritizing the automobile throughput over people walking and crossing and getting to that billion dollar transit investment you have is just self-defeating. And so again, humans start to crowd out the automobile. I get frustrated with St. Paul because it's such a beautiful city. It's such a wonderful place. It has so many great amenities, but they are way, way, way behind the city of Minneapolis in terms of, I think, recognizing how much damage the automobile traffic does. Um, you can talk CO2 emissions and you can talk you know, congestion and you can talk all that stuff where it does like enormous damage immediately to St. Paul is by taking up space that would, could be freed up for way, way more people. People who are biking, people who are walking. And those people would buy stuff, they would shop, they would want to live there, they would want to invest in homes, they'd want to fix up properties, they would want to participate in what it means to live in St. Paul in really meaningful ways. So we need to get out of the way and let that happen. So Chris, his response to this problem was to ask about what the strong towns approach for election season is. But I think that what you're saying, Chuck, is that you don't have to wait to change attitudes about this or to take action on this matter until an election cycle. Like somebody could talk to somebody from Our Streets Minneapolis, which is the organization you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Our Streets Minneapolis. Yeah, go and chat with them. Learn from them or get on some volunteer commissions or start on a neighborhood level. Like there are things that people can do right now. And let me, let me say this about our streets, Minneapolis. I think Ash would, he might disagree with this. He might push back on this, but I don't think so. I, I know that they're active in elections and I know that they do things in election cycles to promote biking and walking, but I don't think their organization has some circadian rhythm with election cycles. I think like the rhythm or the response that the organization has is around building this culture of biking and walking. 
And, and that has more of like a seasonal nature to it because, you know, in the winter here in Minnesota, there's a lot of biking that goes on. There's a ton of biking. You go down to Minneapolis, there's a lot of people. It's 12 below today up here. There'll be lots of people biking and walking in Minneapolis. Very few people up here two hours north in Brainerd, Minnesota. A big part of that is because they take time in the spring, in the summer, in the fall to get people out, to get people involved, to get people biking and walking. They then try to help them understand, here's how you bike year round, here's how you bike in the winter. They connect people so people are learning from each other. And what they're doing at the end of the day is not necessarily gearing up to have the biggest coalition going into an election. I think that's a side effect of what they do. What they're really gearing up to do is build a culture of biking and walking. And when you have a culture of biking and walking, uh, all of a sudden, like the seismic shifts in, in the ground starts to happen. And the demand for, you know, when you do a light rail project through town, the, the idea that someone's going to show up and say, we want the, the billion dollar investment to stop and idle for 90 seconds while single occupancy vehicles go in the cross traffic. People don't stand for that because that's not their culture. That's not who they are. That's not what the place is. And in Minneapolis, you actually have that culture that's been built. And in St. Paul, you don't. I, I don't think that we should be thinking of this in terms of election cycles. I think we should be thinking of this in terms of the broader culture we're trying to build. I love that in these questions, you can see themes kind of rise out of them. So we've got questions about lots of different things, but the response to it has been build the culture. The response to dealing with student development in Texas, uh, Colin's question is build the culture that, that embraces these changes, that embraces the positive developments that are happening. The response to uh, Rodney with his situation with the BRT station is build the culture so that down the road, you are dealing with a better set of choices than cataclysmic money or no money. And the response for Chris, build a culture. That's what Minneapolis is doing that, that accepts cycling and walking as transportation. I love to see these themes emerge when people ask us questions. There's no shortcut. And I think you know, a, a lot of times people look at strong towns and they see an organization that is reaching millions of people that has a big, you know, megaphone, an organization that, you know, has this massive backlog of articles and, and, and podcasts and what have you, and, you know, is having a big effect. And they're like, I, I, I want that. Like, yeah, how do I get that? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think there's maybe, I'm not going to say a lack of appreciation, but a lack of understanding that, like, I've been... I personally have been doing this for now 14 years, starting out as a, a tiny blog that would reach, you know, five people a day. And if we got 15 people, we were ecstatic and just started to like grow things incrementally from there. In most of the work that is important that we need to do, there really is no shortcut. There's no like steroid pill or diet pill that we can take that will automatically give us the result we want. It's a lot of diet and exercise. It's a lot of day to, after day after day doing, you know, challenging ourselves and doing hard work. I, I feel like the seduction of the suburban experiment, this is maybe a, a critical statement on our culture, but I feel like the seduction of the suburban experiment is this instant success, right? Like we'll go out and build a subdivision or we'll go out and build the shopping center or we'll go out and build this thing. And it's, it's done and it's perfect and it's complete and it's like instant success. 
And what we see is that those places are not productive. They don't endure. They don't reinvent themselves. They're not designed to adapt. They're not, they are bankrupting our places. It's very easy if your goal is something next week to do something. If your goal is to actually like change things long-term, we have to think more incrementally. We have to think more in terms of building momentum over time. I hear what you're saying there. Just like your email list, Lauren. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> you start with a hundred people and then you get 200 and now you got thousands and then you get tens of thousands. And By the end of this podcast, I'm sure that like a hundred, 500 people. Hundreds of people, me no doubt. No doubt. Personally add them to the digest list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. So yeah, those are the questions that, uh, and there are, there were more questions on the action lab, but we've got limited well, time. I think we're out of time. I've been talking too much on each of these anyway. So cool. <laughs> can, can you remind people where to go and submit a question? Cause we'll try to do this, you know, every four or five episodes, we can sit down and do another one of these. Where would, uh, where would people go? Anybody who wants to ask a question or uh, weigh in on the questions that we talked about today, because they are also still there, go to actionlab.strongtowns.org, scroll to the middle of the page and hit join the conversation. If you think that something I've said today needs some more elaboration or is wrong, or you've got some uh, <laughs> other alternative idea, or if you've got some resource that, uh, that I, I don't know about, uh, go there and share that as well, because everyone will benefit from that, in, including me. I've got plenty to learn. So let's make that happen. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it was a good time. Looking forward to doing it again soon. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.